The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. In the book of Jude, there's only like one single chapter, and of course, uh, we have gotten through a, a good portion of it at least. Uh, now, I realize if you look down at your page and you see that there are 25 verses, and I say that we are somewhere around uh, verse 7 and 8, that that may seem a little bit frustrating, but we have taken, I guess, this might be the sixth week that we've taken to look at this, and this book is much like other books that we would examine. Oftentimes the first section or two, the first paragraph, the first several verses are going to really give you a tremendous amount of insight as to how that book ought to be viewed. It will allow you, of course, to build context and allow you to see it uh, more from the perspective of the way that God had it to be intended to be penned. Of course, these are inspired writers in this case. We most likely have the half-brother of Jesus called Jude, or Judas, actually. And, of course, he writes this with a very specific intention in mind. And that's really where we spent the majority of our time trying to set this book up in the way that he addresses it and his aim of it. Of course, he writes this book, as he tells us, by the time we get down to verse 3, he writes this book wishing or willing that he could talk about the common salvation. However, he realizes there's much more pressing issues that have to be taken care of. And those pressing issues or to remind us all as Christians, both in his day and ours, to earnestly, and I'm quoting Jude 3 from the King James, to earnestly contend for the faith. And of course, as we mentioned in the first two or three weeks of that as well, to earnestly contend for the faith means more than, it does not exclude it, but it does mean more than just simply to contend for the gospel itself, the good news of God, just simply to preach and to teach the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord this book is really geared toward that, but more than that, it is geared toward making sure that we are willing to stand up for the truths of God and that in whatever way that man might try to twist or to turn or maybe take it and carry it in the wrong direction or try to put in the case of most of the examples he gives, their own affections, their own desires into this, we can't push our affections and desires on God and accept Him to accept it. We've got to do what God says, and the world must do what God says. And we are being commanded here through this book to be sure that not only do we practice godly things in our lives, that we go ahead and encourage them to do the same. And really, this book is about reminding us never to stand on the sideline. Now, don't stand on the sideline. Don't stand back and just say, well, you know, I'm going to live my life as a Christian. I'll live it in the best way I can. I'll live it according to this book. But the rest of the world, if they choose not to do that, which they do have that choice then I'm just going to ignore that and just hope that they never bother me in life. Uh, you've got to consider in the first century times, particularly the time in which this book was written, probably one of the latter ones written of the New Testament, if not one of the last, they were under tremendous persecution. And that persecution was coming in from the outside. And by the time Jude writes this, to one extent, although I don't think this included snatching anybody up and, and flogging them or anything, persecutions were coming in from the inside. There were actually people that he talks about in this book that crept in, quote, unawares, that were pushing these doctrines upon them. And you can only assume if someone has a doctrine, a belief, a teaching that they want to follow, particularly when it gives them liberty to do what they want to do, they're going to be willing to argue that or to fight that with you. 
And Jude says we've got to stand up and fight uh, with them about the truth of God's Word. So we've kind of broken that out already in that manner. Now, we are down in the section, still in the section, verses 5 through 15, that really talk about the arguments that Jude makes. Of course, again, by inspiration, but Jude makes several arguments to try to prove the case up front that it is always better and always right to do what God says. And that goes aside from anything man would suggest or man might think is right. It's always better to do what God says. And he actually talks about three different groups in the first set, three more in the second set, where there was great injury spiritually when someone refused to do what God said. And of course, those examples really began in about verse 5 as he kind of set that up. Again, that's the section 5 through 15. But they stood out in verse 5 because of the children of Israel. And that was his first example. That the children of Israel had the promise of the promised land. They were being delivered by God uh, for that purpose. And they were going to be given that opportunity. However, when they began to rebel in their hearts. And began to basically speak against God by saying, as they did. One of the quotes from the Old Testament is, they, they cried out to Moses and said, Would to God that we had died in Israel. When they did that, they were not just doing harm to Moses and trying to destroy his character or to discredit him and his human abilities. They were actually speaking against God. So there are three, three relative accounts, at least here, of what I've called notable destruction. And the notable destruction for Israel was that they were left in the wilderness for 40 years to wander as a result of their basic heartfelt rebellion and then they, in turn, many of them lost their lives as a result. And you know that very few were able to make it inside the promised land, particularly over or under a certain age, or should I say over a certain age, over a certain age, as say Joshua and Caleb, who were some of the older ones, but yet made it because they stood to do what God said. So that's his first example of notable destruction. The second one was listed here, which we talked about a bit on verse 6, he was talking about the angels themselves. And the quote that Jude gives us, which is very insightful because although 2 Peter mentions this to one extent, I think it's chapter 2, uh, very few other places are as specific and as dedicated to letting us know the account of those quote-unquote fallen angels. And it's been about three, four, five weeks ago when I was here. We talked in the afternoon at least about hell extensively and included that in a part of that. I'm not going back into that discussion. But what Jude does tell us is the angels, quote, left their first estate. They left their own habitation. And so now they are, quote, verse 6, reserved in the chains of everlasting fire unto the judgment of that great day. So until judgment, that's where they are. That's where they're remaining as they're being judged and will be judged. And that was yet another notable Destruction Again, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 and following speak of that. Genesis chapter 6, perhaps verses 1 to 4, as well as uh, Luke chapter 10 and 18 and Isaiah chapter 14, uh, verses 12 to 15. Mention that sort of thing. So we know, know there's biblical accounts that back that up. Jude gives us insight as to how that takes place. And then the third one here he mentions of these notable destructions is the fact that even Sodom and Gomorrah, themselves were rebelling against God. And that's really what's said in verse 7 and 8. We'll reread them because that's kind of where we are. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication 
and going after strange flesh or set forth, this is the phrase I kind of have bracketed and highlighted, or set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So when we think about the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, what are the major, what's the major category? We'll start from the broadest sense. What is the major category of sin that they are committing in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and some of those outliers? It's homosexuality, it's sexual based, all of it at least. And that's one of the major examples of Jude uh, that I think ultimately becomes very relevant to us. Um, my family and I went up on Wednesday, not on Wednesday, we didn't go up on Wednesday, on Friday night and uh, heard Brad Harris speaking and his topic for that night that he was assigned up in Glencoe was basically gender neutrality stuff. It was basically homosexuality. It was basically just showing from God's word that God intended there to be male and female and those two be husband and wife. And he gives no gray areas that can be blurred where someone determines, well, I'm not exactly a male or female. I'm somewhere in between. And he, and he went into an extensive discussion of that, had much evidence for that. And overall, that was great. The truth is God's example here is for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God's example that he uses here of this notable destruction comes out in them. So just to read a few of the phrases over again, Sodom and Gomorrah, like minded, giving themselves over to number one, to fornication and going after strange flesh. What might strange flesh be described as? Same sex is, is the application of it for sure. It's the idea really of going after anything that God has prohibited. And unfortunately in our world, that could, and I'll, I'll keep this as high as I can, that could include not even human. Uh, going after something that is not uh, deemed to be right and good in the eyes of God. And so this does include, which the word there in the King James is there for fornication, pornea, this includes not just same-sex uh, marriages or activity. This includes not just homosexuality, but it includes uh, adultery, a fornication uh, that exists between others and their relationships. That is, anything that is outside the set boundaries and the acceptable behavior of God. And they were guilty of it. Now, I think the thing that may rise up, and this is my opinion, that's all it is, so you can write it down. Jim just said, you know, this is his opinion. The thing that comes in here for Sodom and Gomorrah is not only the sin itself, but it is their attitude about that sin. If you go back to the accounts that are listed, it, it covers a few chapters, but it ends up finally coming to a head in the latter part of 18 in chapter 19 of Genesis when those angels had come in and were visiting with Lot and his family, they had them outside. What happened outside those doors? What were those people doing who were living these immoral, illicit, sexual lifestyles? What were they trying to do to those angels? They were going after these guests, whoever they were. They were going after those guests and they wanted them to the point that as, as Lot is trying to get that door closed, they're trying to push the door in and they're really crying to Lot, send them out so that we may lie with them. That's what they wanted to do. So they did not just want to have their strange flesh 
in and of themselves, they wanted to force that activity onto those who were not even a part of it, to those who were even outside of the city. Now, some would argue about, well, you know, why was Lot there? Why did Lot stay there? Well, we know why he was there. He chose, chose in the beginning the greener grasses, basically, the places where he felt like his family could be well provided for and well prepared for the future. But ultimately, why did he remain there? We're not sure. It seems, however, that he did carry some type of position. He was spoken of as being outside of the gates there. That may have been a judgment position. That's just what some claim. He knew what was going on. He nor his family were blinded to what was happening in that city. And when they try to force that upon the guest, uh, they in turn are forcing their lifestyle upon us. Now, we can look at that and say, well, okay, that, that's good evidence then for, for what we ought to do then. As, as long as they don't force that on us, then we're good. As long as nobody has beat on my door lately and, and cried for my children or for, for my wife or whomever to come out, uh, well, then, then I'm good. Is that completely true? Jude's whole message here, and it goes back to verse 3, everything in this book, and there are several key verses, we'll mention them as we get to them, but the key verse of the book is to earnestly contend for the faith. And, and that wording, that language does not imply to be passive until your hand is forced or to be passive until the, the, the whatever it is tries to get into your house. Now, let me preface that by saying verses 1 through 16 of this book carry one message, and verses 17 through the rest of it, verse 25, carry another. And the first message of this book basically, and I shared this on the whiteboard, uh, a month or so ago. Verses 1 to 16 basically command upon us and remind us that we have to expose evil. To expose evil. The latter part of this, verses 17 to 25, say something different, and that is to encourage the elect. So, so Jude's book really is, is twofold. And that is, he wants to expose the evil. He wants to remind us, and he's using these notable uh, positions of destruction to do that. He wants us to realize this evil exists and what we must do about it in trying to teach and help these people away from it. But the latter part of it, he comes in and spends, again, verses 17 to the end, and really, it really comes down to verses 24 or 23 to 25, the very end, and reminding us that, look, at the end of the day, God will judge and God will perfect and He will be the one that will carry us through this. And again, that's in light of real life first century persecution. And, and you and I, I know I do, I turn on the news today and I see uh, the, the sexual immorality just specific to these accounts or to this account of Sodom and Gomorrah. I see that and I think to myself, well, you know, things are just awful today. They're just terrible. Uh, I wish I had lived back in Jesus' day, things would have been a lot... Well, there's Jude. Uh, there's Second Peter chapter 2. There's proof in those contexts that these things were severe even back then. And then in Genesis 19, proof that in areas, places, Sodom and Gomorrah being listed as those two major cities, this took place then. 
And so it remains as an issue. Now, verse number 8 ties to that, uh, really by that first word, likewise. After the same manner, or by the same way of thinking, likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. So what's he revealing to us here about this, this group, these people? And this doesn't reflect just back on Sodom and Gomorrah. This goes back up the page to, to Israel, to the angels, and now unto Sodom and Gomorrah. What are they willing to do? It's, it's verse 8. Despise. Uh, I'm reading in reverse now. I don't want to read in reverse. They're filthy dreamers who defile the flesh, despise dominion. The idea is all of these groups, and I'm not saying it was as clear to them and as intentional to them at the time. But all of these groups, Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, in some senses said to themselves, I'm not going to follow God. Now, especially with Israel, it doesn't seem so severe. But the outcome was what for those of Israel who were a part of the rebellion? Who were a part of the ones who said, you know what, we can't go in there. God's answer was, well, you don't have to. You, you won't. God had promised to them that land, and that promise was as clear as if, and the language says this in the Hebrew every time it's basically mentioned, that promise was as clear as if they already possessed it. And that's how God spoke of it. And the angels, of course, that, that place, that first estate, that habitation was in their possession. They go against God. These people here, they have a lifestyle that God has instilled in them, male and female. They go against God in all three of those examples. So likewise, these are filthy dreamers who defile the flesh and speak against evil dignitaries. If you want to put a reference in, in your margin to help with this, you can read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Basically, Romans 1, verses 18 to 25, and it breaks out in several different ways, but a huge part of that, Romans 1, 18 to 25, mentions that these types of sins, that including that which defiles the flesh, and any sin speaks against the dominion of God, or His sovereign rule, is the way that's sometimes expressed. It, it is promoted, and, and, I'm, and this is any sin, but is promoted as it is good, it is great. If it, you know, what's, the, what's the adage we say? If it feels good, do it, kind of an idea. And it's being promoted as that. And uh, I mean, it's, it really doesn't take but a minute, and uh, not that this is the best way to do this case study because of what, what can come out of it, but you can turn on your television and try to watch any program that's been made in the last five, ten years or so, and you're eventually going to be hit in the face with some type of sin, oftentimes sexual sin, that's being pushed and promoted in a great light. And I mean, it could happen in the middle of Andy Griffith now because of the commercials. 
but being promoted that way. And uh, I've had this discussion with several. It's, I don't know this is scientific, but a lot of the programs that we watch, most of them are old anyway. But even some of the ones that were produced in the late 90s, uh, which I would have, you know, just on the surface thought, this is great. And especially true now, you get down to about season two to three, something's going to go wrong. I mean, you'll have the best family uh, content you could think about. You get to learn about season two and three. Andy, where's Andy? He ain't sitting in here. Where did that happen for y'all the other day? I'm talking kitty, kitty, dinosaur type. I can't remember. Uh, we had talked about it because our family experienced the same thing. A cartoon took a turn like that. Camp Cretaceous. Most of y'all don't know what Camp Cretaceous is. It's based on the, the movies Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, but it's a cartoon. And it was, I mean, it's an excellent kids show. Uh, taught some great lessons as far as the time I saw it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, end of that, you know, kids trapped in a, in a camp on an island and two of them began to fall in love with each other that shouldn't. I mean, little. It's coming. It, it comes in. And so these messages are being now pushed. Hollywood wants to normalize it. And the more they show it, the more they push it, the more it becomes normalized. Right. And accepted. Yeah, make it, make it the standard. Right. Well, that's um, a little bit of, of a little bit of farther thinking about that Romans one eighteen to twenty five section. Uh, Romans one eighteen to twenty five, and depending on how you view the book of Romans, he basically comes in headlong. I'll, that's not the right way of putting it, but ripping apart the Gentiles and, and to where many Jews would probably stand back and pop their suspenders and say, well, you get them, God. Paul, tell them, get them told. And then by the time you get through all this, which sounds like the most atrocious, horrible sins of anything. Now, what's the, what's the thing about sin? Which is worse? You know, lying or murder? <laughs> that, that we see that differently than God. But you get through what appears to be to us just awful stuff because why? Because we won't do that. We're not, we're not involved in it. You get all the way through and you get down to chapter 2 and basically the words of God then are the fact that, look, it's not just you that do them but those who have pleasure in such. Those that w just stand back and laugh at this and, and make it a part of your entertainment or something, you know, so you can look back and uh, basically it's mostly accepted even though you won't physically practice it. So that's part of that. Now, verse 9 kind of shifts a little bit, at least the way I've outlined this. Those were the three accounts of notable destruction, as I kind of called that. This verse 9 almost stands alone. This is a notable disputation. Now, what does the word disputation mean? To go against is to dispute, to argue. Uh, so, okay, I'll use the big word because it's the D word and it fit well. I'm just, y'all know that. But it means to stand up, to dispute, to argue. And he gives us some information here that is not to my knowledge, and if you can help me find it, is not to my knowledge mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Nowhere else. And we'll read it and then we'll, we'll ask about that. In verse 9, Jude 9, 
Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses and durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now, we do know that it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's about the last six, eight verses. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, what do we know about the death of Moses and what eventually happened to his body? God buried it. We know that much. And that's all that is known. And the explanation of that, I, I couldn't comprehend or understand. Uh, it's kind of always been my bend that God did that creatively because what would happen today if we could manage, or not necessarily we, but if, if mankind could manage to go back and find Moses' body, what would they do with that? It would be worshipped. It would be in a cathedral somewhere in a glass sarcophagus, which they've done to many others of the past. Probably a similar thing would happen if Moses' ark were discovered or the ark of the covenant, you know, that sort of thing. I'm not going Indiana Jones on you, but I don't think they'll find any of that. And in this case, God buried Moses. Now, did God dig a hole? Uh, what's the actual dimensions? Joe Tom's not in here today, but he knows that. Yeah, he is. There he is. What's the actual dimensions? We say six feet under. Three by eight. Is that what you're saying? Not saying God did that. God buried him, though. God took care of the body of Moses. Now, again, this verse doesn't, doesn't mesh with anything else in the Bible but does tell us, yet Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil, disputed for the body of Moses. Is that true? Yeah. Is verse, is verse 9 is true anyway. Now, I'm thankful to God that in so many cases, especially, Cliff illustrated this with a marker board last Sunday afternoon, especially when it comes with, uh, deals with salvation and how to access and obtain it, there are multiple passages that go again and again and again and again to reinforce and re-explain that. And each of them give a little more insight and more understanding as to how that is accomplished, particularly when it comes to baptism and the need for it. But at the same time, and that happens with so many subjects, at the same time, I'm okay with believing God even if He only does mention something one time. Now what I don't get out of that is a full understanding. What I can't obtain from that is somebody says, well, how in the world did Michael uh, uh, argue with the devil? I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. But I can assume, or not assume, but I can know without a shadow of a doubt that that happens. Now, with that said, I know everything we read is true. But I also have come to understand, I'm sure all of you have as Bible students, I know not only is it true, but it's necessary. That every verse, every phrase that we find in the Bible, God put there with intention. And that there's something there that can be found, if not by, and this is the way we did the entire book of Philemon, by passage or by principle. I suggest the principle may apply here as much as the passage. And the fact, and this, this is not just here in verse 9, this is actually something that's going to be more understood when you get in that secondary section, verses 17 and 25, and our attitude and our way of dealing with these, these sins, and especially dealing with the people that commit these sins, and how to try to draw them, uh, King James speaks, to draw them out of the fires. 
And that is the example that when the archangel Michael dealt with the devil, verse 9, again, King James speak, Michael the archangel contending, that's the same word as you find earnestly contend in verse 3, but contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, but watch this, he durst not bring against him a railing accusation. That is, when Michael disputed, contended with the devil, he himself did not bring accusation against the devil for being wrong. But what authority did he use? Last phrase. Last phrase says, the Lord rebuked thee. Now again, I'm not, I, my disclaimer, I'm not saying I figured this verse out at all. But I think I can draw something out of it for me. And that is that when I have to deal with people and, and try to encourage them out of their sin, like the unbelief of the children of Israel, or like the rebellion of the angels, or like the, the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah, the way of dealing with, it, with them is to say, this is what the Lord says. You know, I get that we don't like those things. We've been accustomed and, and tuned to do that based on God's Word. But don't go to anybody and just say, hey, look, I don't like the lifestyle you live. As a matter of fact, it sickens me. makes me want to, you know, to vomit. I don't like the way you live. You need to stop it before you make my child live like that. That's true about my, my mind. Okay, that, that part is true. But what is really supposed to change that individual? The Word of God. And that's why it matters. And again, what did Jude say? To earnestly contend for the faith. Not to fight for ourselves. We fight for our futures in some sense. But not to fight for ourselves. But to fight the fight of God. And to allow Him to do it. And that's what the archangels, the only thing really is revealed in here that we can apply, I assume, that I've, I've noted, and that he did not bring a railing accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now, I said there were some key verses in this. I think G3 is the first key verse. I think another key verse is this one here in verse 9. Because it, un it is a key that unlocks how to handle and how to address these issues properly. And that is to address them with the evidence that God gives. You know, we could illustrate this easily because the Bible does. How did Jesus deal with Satan when he was tempted? Luke, Matthew 4, and Luke 4 both record that. How did he deal with him? He quoted Scripture. He, he said what God said. And whatever he was trying to tempt him to do, the answer to that was, well, God said this. That, that's your point of reference. That's our, our beacon. That's our lighthouse. God said this. That's the standard on which any of our understanding of it is to be based, and especially theirs as well. You know, the argument a lot of times is, and I've been asked this question, you know, what does your church believe? What is our answer to that? To, to think about it. Well, you believe the Bible. What do you think about this? Well, God said... Well, I'd like to have your opinion. Okay, we, we may have some insight based on experience, but based upon truth, it comes from the book. 
and that may be something here. So that's the notable disputation. Now there's another one here. These are a, a little bit less obscure. The next couple of verses deal with what I would call, this is mainly just verse 11, the notable dissension. Now, to descend means to fall out, to fall away. The things that come from, from where they are and come down, that get worse, waxing worse, is kind of a way of saying it biblically. It, says, it tells us about that here. Verse 10, well, we didn't read verse 10. We need to go to 10 and 11 for this. Uh, he did not uh, bring the railing accusation, but rebuke, said the Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those which they know not. They speak evil of those things which they know not, but they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. So before we get to verse 11, I, I shouldn't have overlooked this. Why do these people speak the things that they do? Why does the world say to us as Christians, potentially could and do, say to us, well, you know, I know you've got your little church way of doing things, or you've got your religion, or you've got your faith, but I've also got mine, and I've chosen to live this way, and, and you just have to accept that. Why would they say something like that? Or why would they say blatantly, some might, I don't believe what God said. I just don't believe it. Because they know not. Verse 10 says because they don't know any better. Now that is a point of sadness and sympathy. If the world doesn't know any better, whose duty is it to teach them better? It falls upon us. It's a point of sympathy. Because it is sad what we might see as being so basic and so elementary. They don't know. And again, I think this plays into, uh, in, in my copy of Scripture, it could literally, of course, yours lines up different, but I can literally draw, draw an arrow straight across from verse 10 to verse 19, literally there. In the latter part of that section, verses 19 to 25, and it is a part of the explanation that they don't know better, so they don't do better. They're acting like, quote, brute beast in this. Because they're going based upon feelings, based upon impulse. And so verse 11 now comes in. Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the era of Balaam. For reward, for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Now there are three different groups here that are mentioned. Cain, as well as Balaam and Korah. Cain. When we think about Cain, who do, who do we immediately jump to? What, what Bible character? What is the circumstance? Cain and Abel. And of course, what did Cain do? Cain murdered his brother. And he did that based upon, we would probably say, jealousy slash selfishness. Uh, we don't completely get all of that, but we, we get the idea that he got jealous because... Abel's sacrifice was accepted of God, thence his was rejected. And so, jealousy and slash selfishness, why? Because he wanted his to be the right one. Not based on God's command, but just based on, hey God, if I gave it to you, you got to accept it. Pride was also involved in that. Pride. 
Pride, obviously. Pride was a part of that, which is selfish pride. Is sometimes we bring that phrase out. He wanted to be right. He wanted his way to be done. Now, the application of that can go far and beyond and before this, but spiritually speaking, as far as you know, our lives and our worship to God and that what we give God in, in reverence, a lot of the world just says, look, God, this is what I'm offering. <laughs> this is what I'm, what I'm going to give you. And you ought to appreciate such. No. Not if it falls outside of the boundaries of what God requested and even required. You know, I, I, I can't do it, but if I, if I could do it, if I could turn cartwheels from the stage to the back door and back or maybe walk on my hands, I certainly can't do that. I, I get top heavy either way I turn. But if I, could do, if I could literally walk on my hands to the front and back and I could try to convince someone that, look, we've all got to do this, and if we can do this 54 times every Lord's Day, let's, how many weeks is in a year? 52, let's do it 52 times every Lord's Day. Everybody's required. And, and then we say to God, God, accept it. And he says, no, I'm not going to accept it. We say, well, look, God. You know how much time I put in, the effort I put into doing this, this hand walk or whatever you call that? You know how much effort that was? You know, God, I had to, I had to lose 50 pounds just so I could do it. And I don't know how many bruises and dots I've got on my head where it didn't work. I nearly broke my neck, but I did it for you. That's silly. But it is no more strange to God than someone who says, well, rather than worship you by an example, uh, as we sing praises and, you know, to, to you, psalms, hymns, spiritual psalms, singing, making melody in their hearts, we all do it individually, I'll just choose 20 people that can do that much better than I, and they'll do it for me. No. Pride says, I'll design my own way of loving and worshiping you. Truth says, I cannot. That's a little bit about what we have here. We're, we're out of time, right? We're out of time. So we'll stop right there. Uh, we made it from verse 7 to verse 11 in just a little bit, and we earned the first example. So thank you for your time and attention.